Thank you, Madison. It's nice to have you back, even for a short time. We'll be nice and let you out to get back to school. Good morning. Forgive me if I run a little long this morning. My watch will not cooperate and spring forward. So we I feel like I just have plenty of time this morning up here. Uh, so if I look at my watch, it just means I'm going to be up here longer. But um, we lost an hour of sleep last night. Hopefully it didn't affect you too bad. God will give us an alert alertness this morning. <clears throat> One thing I just want to share as a prayer request before I start is appreciate your prayers for leadership, for the elders and their wives. Something that's been very instrumental in the development of our leadership, at least since I've been a, a pastor, is that um, from the very beginning, we would go to pastor's conferences. And actually, in particularly, a pastor's conference that, that really uh, suited our leadership well. And that was usually held in northern Virginia, Washington area. And the elders and the wives would pack up. We started going every year, and then they started having it only every other year. And so we would go to that. It's hard to find conferences that are conducive to our elders as well, because a lot of pastors' conferences, uh, they uh, have a lot of breakout groups, and it's just more focused on um, pastoral duties and not quite as broad in the range of teaching and edifying. But this particular conference that we used to go to was just outstanding, and we'd come together and we'd pray and seek God as far as what we were learning. But it was great because we could just all hear the same thing. Then they stopped having those pastor's conferences. And all the what we would consider the really nice, good pastor's conferences were just too far away. So we haven't been on one for years, actually, because they were cost prohibitive and time prohibitive. But we decided that it was time to do this again. And even though that they are all the good ones are out west, so to speak. No offense. I hope if there's one local that we don't know about. But um, so we decide we're going to do that. We're going to go to Indiana to, in the Gospel Coalition. We've never been to this conference before. And all the big typical evangelical uh, speakers will be there, most of them. And it's a great opportunity for us to get together, fellowship together, and learn at the feet of Jesus together and pull together in unity, something we haven't done for a while. Say all that just to ask for your, your prayers for our leadership. It's a wonderful opportunity. We ask for safe travels. But um, most importantly, that God would use us in our lives, in our personal lives, just to hear from him. And then, of course, for direction and vision for this church as well. So thank you for that. And I wanted to share that with you. And that will be April 2nd. Uh, Mr. Dwight Ray is going to take the service for us. He's going to, I'm assuming he's going to be in the pulpit. He said he'd take care of it. He was really encouraged that we were going to go. He said, I'll do anything I can to give you guys this opportunity. I'll take care of the service. You go ahead. So um, I'm sure he would appreciate your prayers as well. So I'm assuming he's going to deliver the message. There it is. Sounds like he's already been thinking about it and working on it. Um, and then lastly... Kind of a last call for Monday Thursday service music. If if you've been praying about it and you haven't been sure, um, now's a good time to let me know this week if God has laid a song on your heart to share during this time of deep, deep worship in a specific season in contemplating Christ and the cross and his death for us. This Passion Week season that is huge for the Christian 
church. So let me know this week if you can. We do have some that have stepped forward, which is which is uh, great. So thank you for that. Well, we continue our sermon on a sermon. We continue the sermons, a series of sermons on perhaps the greatest sermon ever preached. And that sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. Not preached from a pulpit, but preached from the side of a hill or the side of a mountain by Jesus. And as you will recall, Jesus is now just beginning his ministry. It is the king unleashed after several years of lying low. Uh, the father has said, now is the time for you to begin. And he's done that. He has been going from town to town, mostly in northern Israel, preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And also performing miracles. And because of this profound preaching and because of these profound miracles, he has quite a following. And he takes these the following of people that are interested in him. Some of them are his true disciples at this time. And he begins to teach them about the kingdom that he's been preaching about, the kingdom that they need to be prepared for. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It, it, it is Jesus sitting down, getting quiet and and officially speaking about how do you think and how do you act? What is this kingdom all about? How does it apply to me? And so that is why we have the Sermon on the Mount. And the surprising thing is that in this sermon, we're going to find that, um, of course, we know that it's about a blessing. Jesus says, blessed are. So we also call them the Beatitudes. And yet the very topics that he talks about are the exact opposite of what we would think would bring a person to a state of blessedness or a state of happiness. They are contradictory. They're very countercultural. They're paradoxes. G.K. Chesterton says a, a paradox is truth standing on its head, meaning it's truth stated in such a way that it wants to get our attention. Like, what? Say what? Did, did I hear you right? And all of these teachings that Jesus is giving us in this sermon, they're all paradoxes because they go, they're, they're counterintuitive and they go against our natural instincts and intuition. If we were to ask ourselves now, what can I do in my life? What can I bring into my life? What kind of decisions can I make so that I can be a happy man? It would not be what he talks about. He talks about what it really means to be blessed. And we also... We're taught that this idea of blessing can only come from God. It's the kind of blessedness that we cannot receive in this world. You can't fill spiritual needs with material, material things. It's a blessing that has to come from God. And it just so happens that the God that is teaching this message about how to be blessed is blessed in and of himself. He is the blessed Lord. It is his, it is his continual or perpetual state of being. He is always blessed. Perhaps some of you will remember June Powell that used to attend this church, Jim and June. And one of her distinctive marks was if you asked, how are you? She didn't give you the usual answer. Oh, I'm doing fine in yourself. You ever asked June Powell, how are you? She's going to say blessed, blessed. I thought that that's a very profound answer. It's a good way to answer if it's true. But if you were to ask God at any time, because it's a part of his very essence and being, how are you today, God? 
it would always be blessed because that's just who God is. And Jesus is teaching us how to, to get this blessedness from the blessed Lord down here into our hearts. How to get the kingdom of heaven here in our hearts. And that's what this sermon is all about. So we're going to read our text. And I'm really only going to look at one verse, but I want to read all 12 of these just because... I want to make a comment about the progression that hopefully you'll notice as I read through these. Let's look at chapter five, beginning in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The progression here, though, I will focus in just on verse three this morning. That's what we want to really unpack. But there's a a progression here that I want to us to notice, and that is first he begins with being poor in spirit. And, and these build one on top of another. And we'll look at what it means to be poor in spirit, having the right attitude about ourselves in our relation with God. And then once we see that condition, once we're poor in spirit, then we enter into a, a, a season, if you will, of mourning. Because we we mourn not just over anything. We'll unpack that next time. But we're mourning specifically over our our sin in relation to God and what the abomination that it is to God. And then what that does is enter us into this attitude of meekness where we're very, very lowly, very humble before God. And then that enables us to begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness of God. So there's a there's a progression here and then we, we become um, we we then we enter into a time of persecution. We become meek and pure of heart. See, when we empty ourselves, we bring on the characteristics of God now that we've emptied our, ourselves. So there's we become peacemakers and pure and we're seeking after these kind of things. And then by the time we get to verse 12, he says there's incredible reward and incredible rejoicing waiting for those that are able to enter into this kind of living and this kind of thinking, this kind of situation of the soul. If we appropriate these things and then later on, didn't read it yet, but then he talks about this is the same passage on the heels of that. He talks about then you are the salt 
and you are the light of the world. So that that famous verse is all spoken in the context of these attributes of the Beatitudes in order to be the salt, in order to shine in the darkness of the world as light. These are the characteristics we have to possess. And then he caps it all off in verse 16. There's a even a bigger reason for why we do this. Why we let our good works like light shine before men so that they can see your good works and do what? Glorify your father in heaven. We'll talk a little bit of that in in two sermons from this one about how God always brings everything God says is ultimately about God. It's for the glory of God. We touched on that this morning talking about prayer. It was a reminder. Wait a minute. It's for the glory of God and That's what this is all about. It's about God, really. So that we can get to this place where we bring our father glory. But we have to start somewhere. How do we begin such a journey, such a pilgrimage? Well, we can't be salt. We can't be light. We can't rejoice until this very first foundational principle is practiced. And that is. Being poor in spirit. So verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the foundation. That's the footer by which all other things are built. All godliness, all of the graces come and they are built on this foundational principle. And yet he starts out with things that we consider very negative. Starts out talking about poverty. Blessed are those who are poor. And you think, wait a minute, poor. Who wants to be poor? How can any good come out of any kind of thing that is impoverished? I mean, aren't we in a fight against poverty? Isn't it a good thing to fight against the very thing that Jesus is talking about here? And yet it's without this kind of poverty that Jesus is talking about. We cannot attain this state of happiness or obedience. So this is the the fundamental characteristic. This is where we start. Got to start somewhere. This is where we start our journey in the kingdom of heaven. This is what we keep with us as we journey through the kingdom of heaven. And it has to do with an impoverished spirit. It has to do with an attitude of our standing before God. You might say it's the opposite of being proud. You know, the, 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 you don't come into the, to the kingdom of God standing tall with your head held high. You just don't get in that way. You come it, at best crawling, really crawling into the kingdom of God when we understand who we really are and what we don't have to offer as we get in there. The kingdom has a low door. So that's the attitude that we're after today. Not so long ago, I shared a devotion at the crew men's breakfast, and um, I just developed this idea for a few minutes there. And that is uh, the statement of the only way to be fit for the kingdom of God is to know that you are not fit for the kingdom of God. You cannot be fit. If you think you're fit for the kingdom of God, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. If you think there's something in you, if you think you have what it takes then you're not fit for the kingdom of God because the very thing that makes us fit is realizing we are not fit. We do not have what it takes to make this journey or to get through those gates. So that's why this is a found, very, very 
foundational. We have to see our poverty of spirit. And once we see that, that's like the footer of grace. All the graces of God are built upon this kind of proper thinking and attitude. We can't have a saving grace with that out this. And we can't have God's sanctifying grace for those of us that are believers without this poverty of spirit. See, pride, um, sin and evil feed on pride. It's an obstacle to the graces of God. Pharisaism feeds on pride. The self-righteousness. It all feeds on pride. And grace feeds on this lowly, lowly spirit. That Jesus is talking about. So a poor spirit is foundational. It's interesting how foundational this is. And yet much of the Christian literature. Boy, I've really been awakened to as I've studied the Beatitudes, what even our Christian literature is feeding our minds today. And it's it's not a lot of this. It's not a lot of the emptying and the brokenness. It's all be filled, be blessed in these kind of ways and 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 fill your life with this and have that. And it, it lacks this humility. It, it lacks this baseness. But if you want to if you want to read about this kind of attitude, you got to go back about a century in Christian literature, because these are the guys that they realize their position before God. And it's in, it's just a whole different mindset. It's incredibly humble. Their unworthiness and it it shows in how they write. So Jesus is talking about emptying yourself. So that's that's what we're going to unpack this morning. That's and that's really where this sermon is headed. The entire sermon. That's what it's based on. See, there's a problem in this world. And the problem, there's a problem with me. And the problem with me is me. And the problem of this world, the problem with man is man. And it is the inherent evil that we have. And we always, our first instinct is to look outside of us and blame the things externally, the circumstances that we live in. When Jesus' sermon is all about, stop looking out there, guys. Just look in here. If you really want to know how to step it up to the to the ultimate level, then you have to deal with this and you got to look at this. And that's where Jesus draws us. You got to know that you're hell bound before you can be heaven bound. You got to know that you're in bondage, that you're chained before you can really understand the redemption and the grace of God. So there's this. Desperation that we need to understand in order to get into the kingdom. We come in desperate. We come in helpless. And then remarkably comes the happiness. There's this paradoxical paradoxical joy that we cannot experience without this kind of poverty spirit. So we come in bankrupt. That's what we're building on here. So the foundation, you've got to start somewhere. So this is, this is the starting point. There's a finish point. The finish line is the reward and the rejoicing. But this is the starting line. Are you there? Have you been there? Have you been to this starting line? Have you crossed it in your Christian walk? How do we define poverty of spirit? You said, but you just told me in about 15, 20 different ways what it means to be impoverished in spirit. But we haven't quite nailed it 
as accurately as we need to. So let's define this. So this is a good place to start. Not just a good place to start, but the only place to start, really. Then what does it really, really mean to be poor in spirit? Well, it's an idiom in the sense that it's not to be taken absolutely literally, like our spirits have to be uh, depressed, um, we have to be impoverished, we can't have the Holy Spirit, because then that would be filled, we would be filled with something, we can't have any drive, we can't have any ambition, there just has to be nothing there, void, that's not what he's talking about when we talk about this kind of poverty. It pertains to one who is a humble in regards to our capacities before God. You have to understand that in order to properly understand all of these beatitudes, it, it is in relation to God. You can't think about them in relation to the world. These bring us before God. They show us where we stand with him from a lot of different angles and where we need to be. So humble in regards to our capacities in relation to God. So simply put, happy are those who recognize their need for God. Happy are those who recognize their spiritual poverty before God. And this is a spiritual poverty. There are some that teach that what Jesus is really after here is a material poverty. And they base that on Luke 6.20, where Jesus says something very similar. Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then some will go on and on and on about how we, as Christians, it's unchristian to be wealthy. We need to give away our possessions, and we need to live in a materially poor state in order to have this poor spirit, in order to get into the kingdom of God. You can't even get in there unless you are in poverty materially. And believe it or not, there's a lot of teaching about that. I think that really misses the mark. And I'm, so the only reason I'm mentioning it is because it's out there. If it wasn't out there and you wouldn't read about it, I wouldn't say anything about it. But I think it's obviously erroneous because... Jesus is um, one of the things that we do as believers is try to help the poor and the needy. Why? So we can lift them up out of that status. The idea is that we do fight against poverty. So how can we fight against something that we're supposed to become? It's just counter. Uh, it's, it's a contradiction there. We are to help the poor. We are to alleviate the poor and we need to have means to do that. And Jesus' disciples, they were well taken care of. Now, they, they did get rid of things. They left their nets and their jobs. But we don't read where they were starving to death and giving away all this. They were sharing. They were taken care of. Jesus took well care of them. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Thanks to his wealth, Jesus had a place for his body to go. It was all part of the plan. So I just want to get our minds away from that and back to this idea about the spirit. So when we're talking about poor, there are two primary Greek words that help us understand this. And there are two basic words that are used when you're talking about this state of being poor. And one of the words describes normal poverty. Uh, the word penace. And it describes people who, this is the person you, you would, might call the working poor. They, they have jobs, but they got to work, you know, two or three shifts just 
just to even put food on the table. It's just that kind of lifestyle. Very, very hard working. You can hardly get ahead. You got to work and work, work your fingers to the bone, so to speak. And then still you just barely have enough. And that's that's your general concept of poverty there. But there's another word also used for poverty. And that's the Greek word patakos. And the, and the root word for this, or the, the verb or the root word for this word, has to do with cringing back, stepping back and cowering. So what is cringing and, and cowering back? have to do with poverty, shrinking back. Well, in classical Greek, this word was used to describe beggars. Because it was a description one of, of one who begs, one who cowers, one who crouches into an, a corner, stays in the shadows, doesn't want to be really seen because of the shame and the unworthiness, but they just stay back and, and they put out there, they ask for alms. It's, it's, a, it's a, a place of great humility, a place of great shame. They, they don't want to be there, but that's just a place that they have found themselves. And so they, they uh, have been reduced to beggary, and so they kind of hide themselves or stay off to the side. The last thing they want to do is, is make real true eye contact, lest you recognize them for who they really are. And so the beggar is dependent upon others. You've, you've got nothing. You've got no means to care for yourself for whatever reason. You literally are dependent on the mercy. You're literally dependent on the generosity of others to take your next breath. And so Jesus is saying, blessed are not just the poor, but blessed are the beggarly. Of spirit. Blessed are those that are cowering in the shadows and cringing before me because they realize how unworthy they realize they have nothing and they can't even hardly stand to look. They're so impoverished. With their hands out, please, I I have nothing. I need everything from you. To enter in. To the kingdom. As opposed to those who wouldn't cower, as opposed to those that would say, well, you know, I don't have much, but I got just enough. I got just enough to make myself worthy to be in the presence of God. I got just enough to save myself, just enough to take care of myself. That's not the spirit befitting of the kingdom. It's for those that are recognize that they are utterly incapable Utterly unworthy. The beggarly poor. I need grace. I need mercy. Isaiah 66 two. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. 
See, God cares if, if you want to connect with God, really be in the presence of God. He teaches us what is required. He, he is t- training our minds to think along of the terms. If we really want to connect to God, this is the kind of attitude, the kind of spirit we need to possess. It's the exact opposite of pride. God opposes the proud. He resists the proud. In, in a sense, doesn't want to be in the presence of the proud. But somebody like this, he, he thrives on that. The destitute, the contrite, the bankrupt, the beggarly. So you think, well, okay, so I, I, I'm pretty sure I got it. I, I've The definition there, there's been a lot of words out there. But it would be really nice. What would really nail it home is if I just had this kind of example, what would it look like in real life? What what would that kind of spirit, how would it come into play? I think if I had an example, then maybe that would really just settle it for me. And Jesus gives us an excellent example of exactly what these two different spirits look like, a poor spirit and a proud spirit. This is how it might play out. In daily life. And he gives it to us in the parable in Luke 18 about two men. Verses 9 through 14. You've heard it many times. But he begins like this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see it was a problem then and it's a problem now. This thing called thinking we're righteous. Thinking we got it together. Thinking we don't really need the mercy. We don't really need the grace. It's more kind of God owes us because of what we have accomplished. A big, big problem. So he goes on and he says in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, not more than, not in addition to, but justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a perfect example of what he's talking about in this sermon. Notice the position of this tax collector. He's. He's in the shadows. I mean, he, he doesn't even want to look at God. He doesn't want the light. He doesn't want to be seen. He just, he just is in total need. And he's beating his breast. Please have mercy on me, God. I, that's all I, I, I need right now is mercy. And that is... Who went home justified. 
The one cringing, the one cowering. The one realizing his true state. That's who God heard. You see, happiness is for the humble. This happens in individual lives. This can also happen in church life. Is there such thing as, a, as an entire church or congregation that could possess a spirit of pride? Where God might resist? Revelation 3.17, remember the church of Laodicea? The words are, for I, you say I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. This is a church. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, even, even as churches, we can turn to the ways of the world. We can look to the world. We can look at bank accounts. We can look at buildings. We can look at numbers. We can look at superstars and experts. Is that what God is after? Is that the heart of a church that God wants? What about, what about the, the elders and the deacons that nobody's even heard about? What about... The, the Sunday school teachers that come and tremble up here because they realize this is God's word and I got to teach it. What about the Sunday school teachers who humbly come and serve Sunday after Sunday and nobody hears anything about that, but their heart's right and they just want to reach the hearts of children. And this brokenness, take whatever you can and use it. Isn't that where God can be found? Isn't that what the scriptures teach us? Even an entire congregation can take on a certain kind of persona and belief and a way of seeing ourselves and a way of seeing God. I got to tell you, some of the stuff that we are led to believe today about churches and success and this kind of stuff, it's not in scripture. It's just we get duped. When we start looking at famous, you know, being famous and being published and, 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 um, and the, the buildings and the numbers. Wealth isn't wrong. Those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But it, isn't it looking at the heart? Isn't it the attitude behind these things that we have to be very careful about? Not just for salvation, but saving grace and sanctifying Grace. So Jesus is trying this it's truth standing on its head. Get our attention. John MacArthur says when you admit your nothingness, that's not the end, that's the beginning. But that is the hardest thing you will ever do. It's the hardest thing you will ever do. Jesus is saying the first thing you've got to say is, I can't can't do it. I don't have it in me. There's just absolutely nothing in my spirit that makes me worthy of anything. Just this week, I thought to myself, as I, I was just admiring God's creation, and I walked outside and I thought to myself, who are you to deserve a new view of beauty every day? You know, what did you do to deserve the sunrise and the sunset? What did you do, do to deserve all that I have given you? Nothing. Nothing. 
It's just grace. When we empty ourselves and we and we say, here I am and there's nothing in here to offer. Then God comes in and fills that empty spirit with his grace. Then we have a new problem. What are we going to do with all this God that we have? What are we going to do with all this glory that we have? Then the adventure's different. The journey's different. A different perspective. St. Augustine, before his conversion, talks about in his writings how proud he was. And he was very proud of his intellect. Very intelligent. He was a smart guy. We still read him today. Very proud. He was proud of his knowledge. And he says it held him back from believing. Only after he emptied himself of his pride did he ever know God. It was this obstacle. It was blocking the grace of God. Like the other parable of the unforgiving servant, we owe the the point of that parable is you, you owe God way too much. It's astronomical amounts. You can't repay him. You just can't do it. So we are at his mercy. The grace is given. It's just given. It's a gift. It can't be earned. So the only way to know to be fit for the kingdom of God is to know that we are not And lastly, what is the result of this? Well, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who's theirs? Only those with that impoverished spirit. That's the theirs here. It's very simple, very straightforward. Are, Are you one of the theirs? Is that you? The poor in spirit. Do do we have this foundation of saving grace and sanctifying grace? Do we know Christ and is he the king of our hearts? Have we emptied ourselves? Have we laid aside everything that we thought we accomplished and thought that would make him turn our direction? And realize, God, I got nothing. Absolutely nothing And I just am in a position to either receive from you or I die. So how does all this work? How how can we be poor in spirit, even practically speaking? We don't we don't want to make mistakes because the church individuals have made mistakes throughout the years of what it means or or how we can attain this. The, the monastics, for instance, they, they tried to do it in their own power. And so they sold all their possessions. They tried to bring about this poverty of spirit. They sold all their possessions. They wore uncomfortable clothes on purpose. And we're all about comfort, right? Uh, they wore uncomfortable clothes, outfits on purpose. And they even inflicted pain upon themselves. Uh, some of them even mutilated themselves trying to keep their spirits lowly and poor. They abused themselves so that they could fit the description of those that would enter into the kingdom of God. But you can't do it by your own power. You can't move to a certain location. You can't wear a certain uncomfortable outfit or no outfit at all. You can't say a certain prayer or a certain amount of prayers. This lowliness of spirit has to come from God. How does that happen? It's when we begin 
to look at how big God the revelation. As we begin to see how big God is, the effect of that is we see how small and unworthy we are. See how that works when we put our focus on God. When God begins to enlighten the mind. He's big and we are small. We live in a culture that feeds itself on pride, so it's hard. It's very hard to keep this kind of mindset. It's hard to continually keep ourselves stripped of these kind of things that could build us up when we're constantly fed this diet. We can even get prideful about ministry, how we're serving the church. And therefore, we are in opposition, suddenly moved from a favored state to now God opposes that proud area in our lives. So we, we want to look at God as big. Another thing we can do practically to have this kind of poor spirit is ask for it. God, give me this spirit. Help me be mindful of this. That's what beggars do, right? Lord, may I? I don't deserve it, but may I have it? Ask God for humility. Beg for his unlimited grace. What are some practical signs that we might be on the road to this kind of impoverished spirit? Well, there's some very practical things that we can look for. I think, hmm, I kind of think I'm there or I think I'm on the way there, so... What are some good signs or indications in my life that would prove me right or wrong? Well, first, how much do we think about ourselves? How obsessed are we? I've been through periods in my life where I catch myself. Well, before I became a Christian, I never realized it, but all I did was think about myself. Then I became a Christian and I was challenged to, to think, how many times do you say I in your conversations? And I was busted all day long because I realized all I do is think about myself and talk about myself. I never realized what a problem it is. How obsessed are we with ourselves? We gotta, instead of being obsessed with our own glory, we should be obsessed or intrigued by the glory of God. That's what should be foremost on our minds. That's where all this is taking us. It's not a good sign if we're only thinking about how we can promote ourselves in our own glory. Another sign is... How much do we complain about things? Complaining is a sign of pride, not poverty. Because complaining means this. I'm not getting what I deserve. I think I'm worthy enough to deserve these things and I'm not getting them. So I'm going to whine and complain about them. That's an element of pride. When you lack everything... Everything you get is precious. Similarly, how much praise is in our lives? This poor spirit is filled with praise, overwhelmed with gratitude because it realizes, wow, I didn't deserve that, Lord, every day. I didn't deserve that. I didn't deserve that. What a blessing this is. But when we, when we think we're deserving of all these things, then there, we don't even see the blessings that God gives us. I like Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 1, 13 through 14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, I received mercy. I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He realizes what 
his daily bread is all about. Of course, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Another sign is, how do we view other people? Are we impressed with ourselves only? Or are we just impressed with what God can do with other people? It, it honors God when we marvel at His excellencies and the excellencies of others. And then lastly, the great Puritan Thomas Watson says this. If you're poor in spirit, you'll take Christ on His terms, not yours. The proud sinner will have Christ and His pleasure, Christ and His covetousness, Christ and His immorality. The poor in spirit is so desperate, he will give up anything just to get Christ. And he gives an example. A castle that's long been besieged and is ready to be taken will deliver up on any terms to save its life. He whose heart has been a garrison for the devil and has held out long in opposition against Christ, when once God has brought him to poverty of spirit and he sees himself damned without Christ, let God prosper. Let God offer and he will simply say, Lord, what will you have me to do? He's right. Someone who is poor in spirit takes Christ on his terms. Is that you this morning? Is that us this morning? Where do our spirits stand in relation to our salvation? If we ever bow the knee, if we ever seen ourselves in this light or do we think we're in heaven based on what we brought in based on our own merits of some kind have we bent the knee and emptied ourselves and trusted only in Christ not Christ plus what I brought with my bank account but only in Christ are we the besieged castle in need of salvation or are we the besieged castle in need of sanctifying a certain area of our lives that we've been holding on to? Just out of proud and arrogance and maybe we didn't see it before. But God has brought it to our attention this morning. I've been glorying in myself in this thing in my life. And it's been keeping you from me. And I am besieged and I just say, what are your terms? Because you are my first priority. And the most important thing is that I have you in my life. And that my life is bringing you glory. Are we blessed in spirit this morning? May God bless the preaching of his word.